The summer skin is just around the corner, and you know what that means. The water gets warmer, the skin gets darker, and the hair gets... Puyer? Luckily, our friends at Manscaped are here to make that summer bod pop with their fourth-generation performance package, which includes the signature Lawnmower 4.0. Join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get ready for a shaved boy summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off, plus free shipping with the code GWC. As the great Will Smith and DJ Jazzy Jeff said, it's like the summer's natural aphrodisiac. Once again, 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with promo code GWC. Hello everyone, and welcome back to an ongoing series where we're discovering some incredible projects coming down the pipeline in terms of Canadian professional wrestling history and Canadian history as well. As usual with the flagship program of Grappling with Canada, I'm your host, The Taxman, and today I'm very pleased to be speaking with author and historian Vance Nevada. Vance has been working on a project which we had discussed when Vance was on in an earlier episode, part one of the Roddy Piper series that we had done earlier on in this year. Vance is back tonight to talk about his upcoming project, Uncontrolled Chaos, Canada's Remarkable Professional Wrestling Legacy. He's going to be discussing some of the interesting aspects in regards to this story. We talk a little bit about uh, what goes into a project like this, how you can possibly edit yourself when it comes to Canadian professional wrestling history, as well as ways to get all information in regards to the program. So without further ado, I'm going to throw it to my tremendous conversation with author and wrestling historian, Vance Nevada. All right, Vance Nevada, welcome back to Grappling with Canada. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, tonight's a very special reason for having you here. We are in the midst of a very special project that you have been working very hard and uh, very diligently on, something that you alluded to uh, when I had you on previously on the Roddy Piper uh, episode. But now we can finally get into your project that you've uh, you've had in the works and uh, spent a lot of time and invested a lot of energy into. Let's, let's hear a little bit about this uh, project upcoming. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm very excited uh, to share with everybody that uh, my latest book, uh, Uncontrolled Chaos, Canada's Remarkable Professional Wrestling Legacy, uh, is, is finally, uh, the writing is completed and, and the stats are calculated and the book is now uh, in the hands of the publisher for layout and design. So first thing off the top, I think the name is tremendous because, you know, just the legacy of Canadian professional wrestling history, obviously something that we're exploring in depth in this program, but it's, it's such an, a vast, vast history and a vast array of topics, of subjects, of information. And all of these things kind of are are culminating and wrapping up into this publication that you're working on. But before we kind of get into the the 
meat of the matter, if you will. Let's get a bit of backstory. What was your reasoning behind it? What inspired you to, to really sink your teeth into this project? Well, you know what? I, th- I think, uh, you know, the, 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 the pandemic shutdown of wrestling was, was devastating for me personally. Uh, you know, cause we just started to get things rolling. I had, had a few years away from wrestling and was just sort of back and finding my groove. Uh, you know, as, as a performer, and then, uh, and then we were shut down for almost two years. Uh, so initially, you know, particularly here in the province of BC, they, we shut down in March of 2020, and, and uh, there was sort of, you know, hints that, you know, the initial shutdown was only going to be eight weeks. Well, you know, we were skeptical. We said, there's no way this is only eight weeks, but we'll be back in business by June. Uh, and then June became September, and and then as we got into the fall and now we're six months into this thing with no end in sight. Yes. Uh, I was just so incredibly discouraged uh, because I was working with, with uh, all-star wrestling here in Vancouver and we thought, okay, well, if we're going to be shut down for a little while, well, let's just take, take advantage of that time to reinvest in the company. Um, let's do some merchandising, you know, let's, uh, you know, we were talking about getting new belts for the company. Well, let's get those ordered now while we've got a little bit of a pause but let's also do things that are going to keep us in the public eye, you know, during that period of time. So we had the whole crew in studio and did the whole series of sort of, uh, out of character, uh, interviews, kind of, you know, the, the care, the, the people behind the characters. Uh, so that we had fresh content, you know, that, that carry us through the six month, uh, delay. Yes. Uh, or six month pause. And when we got to the end of that six months and all of our content had been used and, there was still no nothing, and you know, I said, I just need to set this all down and, <laughs> and go away and do something <laughs> positive and productive, and know that there's going to be an outcome uh, to it. So, I think though, you know, really the research for this book began in 1994. Uh, you know, just when I was just a kid, basically, you know, 19 years old, and uh, there was a wrestling magazine called Wrestling World magazine, and uh, it was out of New York. And that's back in the day when you could actually find wrestling magazines in your local newsstand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, probably like you know seven or eight different titles. And Wrestling World was always neat because they would have like you know sort of these like uh, almost like a fan mail kind of thing where you know people would talk about projects that they were working on. And there was a guy, uh, and I still remember this vividly. This is the summer of 1994. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Tom Parks was uh, putting together the Arizona Wrestling History Society. I thought, well, that's really neat, like a wrestling history society. And you know, I'd never heard of anything like that at that time. And he's like, uh, you know, we're encouraging people to become members. And I think membership was like 15 bucks. Yeah. But I was so broke. I didn't even have 15 bucks. <laughs> and, <laughs> to, and 15 bucks back then is not like 15 bucks today either. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so I, I don't have this kind of money to spend. So I thought, well, if I could maybe put in some sweat equity. So I thought, well, I'll go, you know, do a little bit of work on a history project and contribute, um, you know, to this to this historical society. And then maybe I can get, you know, I can get in for free. Yeah. And so uh, I went, to, you know, to the, uh, the, the Winnipeg archives and started my uh, search there right behind the, the Hudson Bay there, uh, the archives building. And started going through old microfilms. And I thought, oh, you know what, there isn't really that much history in Manitoba wrestling, you know, to my knowledge at that time. 
I was only aware that wrestling had happened as early as 1972. So I thought, well, I just need to go back as far as 1972. Uh, how, how long is that going to take me? <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's where it starts. <laughs> then, you'd get this, then you'd get, yeah, you get this like kernel of, of something else. You're like, oh, no, wait a minute. This guy was wrestling in Winnipeg in the 50s. So you start going back and back and back. And then it, suddenly now, you know, we've got this, this vast collection of, of results and as I was waiting and, and putting pieces together, I might be waiting on you know something from a wrestler or their family, you know, to kind of fill in some of the blanks. I thought, well, geez, you know what? I'm pretty well done, Manitoba. I should add Saskatchewan because not a lot happened in Saskatchewan, so that'll be a pretty short project. Well, next thing you know, you know, here we are, you know, 28 years later, uh, the results file that I have for Canada uh, is 5,800 pages long. Jeez, uh, you know, it has. Uh, over 56,000 wrestling events. Uh, and that's just from 1930 to the present. There's a bunch of stuff before that. So, I mean, the earliest date we have for wrestling in Canada was in 1867. So, I mean, there's a lot of material. Uh, but I also realized, you know, like even diehard wrestling fans, they're not going to spend money on a results book. Uh, I mean, it's, it's neat to, to know, but there's so many online resources for results. If you're looking for something specific, you, know, you can go to one of five web pages and, and find that information. So, you know, the, the results themselves aren't where the value is. We need to, like, actually take this 5,800 pages of data and convert it into something that, you know, tells the story of Canadian wrestling and uh, really highlights, you know, what was special about you know, the wrestlers and, and, and particularly some of those wrestlers who, you know, uh, were, a, were a huge deal, but don't get nearly the press or the credit that they deserve years after the fact. So that was kind of the, the foundation for it. Uh, 12 years ago, I had uh, published Wrestling in the Canadian West, yes, uh, which was focused on the West four provinces. And so initially when I started to, to sit down and look at this project, I thought, well, okay, well, I did the book on the West. Uh, let's do a book on the East. And, uh, and then, you know, I realized, well, yeah, but as soon as I get done the book on the East, well, it's now, you know, 15 years ahead of where the other book left off. People are going to say, well, when are you doing the update to the West? Yes. Book? So, you know what, let's, let's, you know, bring in the West stuff, update what's happened in the last decade or so, and add the East. So now we have one book that has, the complete history of professional wrestling across Canada uh, from the start of the territories in 1930 up till the present. Now there's obviously you just illustrated, you know, the sheer amount of information, not just from, you know, statistics, um, matches, that type of thing, but it's, it's so, there's so much out there and it's very easy to get overwhelmed Especially when you really start going back when you're passing the 60s, you're going into the 50s, into the 40s, into the 30s. When you were working on this project, how did you kind of focus your research? Was Were you more focused on what was happening province to province? Or did you kind of take a macro approach and, and kind of look at what was happening across Canada and then start to filter in what you wanted to highlight for the pro, for the project? Yeah, you know, at the, at the beginning, you know, when I was researching results, I think one of the, the cool advantages that I had, you know, a lot of, 
I mean, there's no money in, in wrestling history research, and there's maybe only about a couple of dozen actually devoted historians that are out, like, beating the bushes and, and uh, going through all those microfilms and visiting libraries and archives in, in the communities and whatever. You know, you know, maybe 30 in North America, you know, that, that really have spent a lot of time on it. So, but a lot of times because of the nature of it, and this is before, you know, a lot of interlibrary loans and stuff like that, where you could borrow microfilms from that city and bring them to your town and yes. use them and send them back. You know, it was a lot of cases where someone might have like a vacation day or a day off from their job. Now they're going to, they're going to go for a weekend and spend a weekend in that town and go visit that library and, and do some research in, in that newspaper. Um, for myself, you know, because I was traveling as a wrestler, what I would do is I would piggyback my wrestling bookings with the opportunities to go and do research in the town. Ah, so knew, very good. Okay, next, next month I'm going to be in Regina. Okay, let me uh, you know scribble down what I need from Regina and what years particularly that I've got gaps. And then I would plan to be in the city about four hours ahead of when I needed to be at the arena, and I would be in the library. And so a lot of the guys – you know, that I would travel with, first of all, they'd be annoyed that we have to travel so early <laughs> to get to the place. But uh, a lot of times they would be laughing at me because we'd get to the town early and they're like, okay, this is great. We've got time to go to the gym. And so I'd be like, uh, no, I can't go to the gym. I got to go to the library. Yeah, I got to go read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they would drop me off at the library. They'd go to the gym, go eat, whatever, come back and get me. And then we'd get to the arena by bell time. And so I would have like these like notebooks with scribbled shorthand in them. Uh, and then, you know, when I get home from that trip, you know, then I would transcribe it into, into my computer and, and, uh, and update the files. And so that was kind of how, you know, it, it all, all got put together. And I think, you know, particularly you would have, a, you know, a territory like stampede wrestling and you know, the results that are available were typically, you know, mostly from the main city. So you'd have Calgary results for Stampede. And so, yeah, you might have every weekly Calgary, you know, lineup and result for the 40 years that it ran, mm -hmm. but you don't have the full loop. Uh, and so now I'm putting together that, that what does that week in the Stampede wrestling territory look like where you've got Calgary Friday night, Edmonton Saturday night, Sunday night is off, Monday night is Lethbridge, Tuesday night is Red Deer. Uh, Wednesday night is Saskatoon, Thursday night is Regina, and then Friday they're back in Calgary. And so now you're putting together the whole the whole circuit, and when you can sort of understand the rhythm and say, okay, I need to be checking the Friday papers for Regina. Yes. So it has the results from the Thursday matches, and so you you know you you, you do that, and then put together the the circuit for uh, for BC as well, and sort of you, you get the rhythm. Yeah, here's how that weekly loop looked. Um, uh, BC was a little bit trickier because, um, in Calgary, they just used the Friday night Calgary shows as the TV tapings. And if you remember watching Stampede Wrestling, very rarely did you actually see a match in its entirety. That's right. Yeah. You know, they would start the, start the opener at about the 10 minute mark. And so you'd see the finish of that match. And then you very rarely saw the conclusion of the main event. You know, you had some. Something happened, and then next thing you know, you, you, they go to commercial, and they come back, and Ed Whalen is talking about, oh, you missed a good one. Yeah, he's in the ring, or he's doing the post-match post, post -match interview, yeah. or, or whatever, whichever, yeah. Yeah, so the results for Calgary TV are easy to find. They're the, the Calgary show. Uh, you know, in B, 
BC, they had their own separate day where they were actually in studio doing studio tapings. And so tracking down those results was, was tricky. Uh, but you, when you put together the, the Western Canada stuff, I was feeling like so amazing. Like, yeah, this, this is great. And then when you, you get to Ontario and Quebec, that's where it gets really, really tricky. And even the Maritimes during its height, because you put together the loop and you'd feel like, yeah, that's great. I've got the full week of Toronto and Montreal, no circuits. Mm-hmm. But then you realize, no, no, you know, those Maple Leaf Garden shows in the 70s, if you ever looked at the results, there was like 10 matches yeah. <laughs> at Maple Leaf Gardens. Well, what was happening with the Toronto circuit is outside of the Toronto show, they were running three different towns a night. So they had three different loops happening yeah. for Maple Leaf Wrestling in Ontario. They would have three match shows happening in all these other smaller cities, and then everybody reconvenes in Toronto for the big show. So putting together uh, Ontario and Quebec has been a massive, massive puzzle. Uh, and then you get a case where in the 70s in, in Montreal, where there was this huge territorial war, between the Rougeos and the Vachans. Yeah. And both of them are spending a lot of money, kind of like the Monday Night Wars in the 90s, if you will be familiar with. This is in the 70s, where they're like waging war on the battle lines. They both got television. They're both running two to three shows a night around Quebec and both bringing in big names. And so you have like all of this activity happening in Quebec in a very concentrated amount of time. Uh, it, it's... You know, to, to look at it just in the in the sheets of results and try to put it together, yeah, you know what? If you're really diehard, you're gonna dig in and kind of go, "Oh, wow, this is a big deal." No, we need to you know, we need to distill that, yeah, <laughs> and, and 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 put it in in a, in a format that you know the diehards are still gonna get enough information, but you know, at the point when you get really really excited and now want to go share that with your girlfriend or your wife. We need to, to, to make it uh, easy to digest. <laughs> well, and, more, and much more accessible for even the average wrestling fan, somebody who maybe not is that in-depth into, you know, this happened this night, this happened this night, this happened, but they want to understand the history of what actually happened in, in the Canadian territories. Yeah, and so we've really tried to break it down. So the, the book is... Um, is segmented by region. So that we start in, on the East Coast. Okay, here's the history of the Maritimes from 1930 to 1990, you know, the whole span of the territory era of wrestling. Mm-hmm. Then we go to Quebec and Ontario and so forth. Um, one thing that, that I have done in the middle of the book is actually put in a chapter about the WWE's international expansion and how that changed wrestling. And so if you talk to, you know, even, even most wrestlers that are active today and say, well, what is the difference between the independents and the territories? They can't tell you, right? Well, it's been lost. It's, it's been lost. Yeah. So we've explained, you know, what, what Vince McMahon did, you know, what were the, the things that he did that changed the face of wrestling, how that impacted the existing scene, how it's influenced the independents, um, to give it context. Uh, and then, the book goes on to sort of that region by region recap of what's happened since 1990 to now, um, which I think is the piece that I've always found. And maybe I'm more sensitive to it because I am of that era, 
you know, 1990s to the present mm-hmm. that I've always felt that any books that you see on wrestling talk about the territories and sort of that like golden age of wrestling. But then, you know, the coverage of the independence is usually like two or three paragraphs. Yes, it's very it's just, glossed yeah, over. And, and wrestling, yeah. And wrestling continues to this day in small halls and community centers. Uh, and some guys have broken out from that system and have become big stars. But, you know, on the whole, independent wrestling doesn't get a lot of coverage. And so I've been really pleased to really dive into that and identify, you know, region by region and promotion by promotion. Who are some of the standouts that really maybe maybe the, the casual fan hasn't heard of because they haven't seen them on television with the WWE? Uh, but, you know, the diehards definitely should know about them. If you only know your regional stars in, in wherever you are, if you're in Winnipeg, you know Danny Duggan, Mentalo, AJ Sanchez. Uh, well, who is the Danny Duggan, Mentalo, AJ Sanchez of Toronto, yeah. of the Maritimes, of, of, of Vancouver? And so really trying to put that all together and, and create a, an overall vision of what professional wrestling is and who, who are the major contributors? There's a couple of things that you had brought up in in the conversation that I want to kind of circle back to. One is regarding you know individuals who are out there beating the bush to try and find information on wrestling history because you know as you kind of alluded to, uh, there's a lot of periods of wrestling where everything's kind of been whitewashed and it's if you almost don't know where you're looking, you're you're not going to find it. So I, I totally understand the point of view that you have, you know, being a wrestler that you're in these towns, you've written down what you want to find out specifically about this town. And then you can go in, spend the time to try and find what you're looking for. Um, that it, it's such a crucial part of the puzzle because, you know, I'm talking with, you know, people across Canada, obviously we know, you know, some of the bigger names like yourself or Pat LaProd or, or Bertrand Bear who are, you know, regionally focused, but then there's, there's newer people like Jamie Greer, who's doing some work on the Windsor wrestling scene as well. And it, it's fascinating that all these different people from all these different regions of Canada are kind of unearthing this, this information and really, you know, kind of dialing down almost on, you know, how did this all work? Where did it all start? Who is it? Who were the players? What happened? And I think that part is so fascinating. I think, you know, right now is such an exciting time uh, to be a wrestling fan or, or to be a wrestling historian because now with, with, you know, the social media and with the different Facebook groups that exist, there are so many different groups that are out there, you know, whether it's, you know, a region that you're interested in or a wrestler that you're interested in or, or a genre of wrestling. Uh, there's so much stuff. And even for myself where, you know, I'm saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty confident that I've got a pretty thorough record of what's happening in Canada. I'm still adding stuff. Yes. I'm still finding stuff. Uh, you know, I, I added about 10, 10 events yesterday from the 50s and 60s. So you've got, uh, you know, Bertrand and, and Pat LaFrade in, in Quebec, you know, pretty, pretty well versed in what's happened there. Uh, Wes made mint, uh, and, and Jesse, uh, Jason, Jesse, Jesse. Jesse. Yeah. Jesse. Yeah. You know, they're, yeah, with they're the really NWCA. Like, you know, yeah, they're the Ontario guys. Uh, you know, they're the authorities there. You know, and uh, the Maritimes, uh, my good friend, 
uh, Rob Seeley is the man. Uh, you know, it, you know, when I was getting ready to go to print, and I thought, okay, I've got everything. Uh, you know, here's here's what it looks like from my end. Um, and one of the things that we've added uh, in the book, and this was this was the part that actually like extended the production time, like the, the development time, by about six months. Is uh, the question I wanted to, to to answer is statistically, who are the top 100 wrestlers in Canada of all time? Uh, so I mean, lots of people have tackled you know top 10 and top 100 lists, or you see lots of discussion about who is the Mount Rushmore of yes, whatever, always you always see like. those on on Facebook and Twitter and whatever. Yeah, so uh, you know, I really wanted to, to look at it from a statistical point of view in terms of you know who put in the work, uh, who are the top 100 male wrestlers, top 100 female, and top 100 tag teams of all time. And as I'm starting to put those lists together, I realized, well, I think it would be interesting for people to see, you know, based on the number of shows promoted, how many shows did Stampede Wrestling promote? If you're if you're too young to have experienced that era of wrestling. You know, why was Stampede Wrestling such a big deal? Stampede Wrestling promoted more than 8,000 wrestling events. Oh, it's unfathomable. Uh, more than any other company. Yeah. <laughs> you think about some of the companies that are operating now, they're, uh, I think, one of the most prolific uh, is in Vancouver, ECCW. They haven't even cracked 1,000 shows, and they've been operating for 25 years. That's crazy. So... You know, to give you yeah, that context where a lot of the independents were talking about, yeah, they made a run four or 500 shows. Yeah, that's awesome. But, you know, the territories here, you had companies running 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 shows. Um, so I've got those, you know, that list in the book to say, here are the top 50 promotions by volume of shows that mm-hmm. they've presented. Um, and so when I presented that to Rob Seeley, I said, hey, Rob, here's what I've got for all the companies ran in the Maritimes. Here are the show counts. He checked that with his research. He goes, "Oh no, I just found the, you know, the weekly results for this town, this town, this town." <laughs> so I'm like, "Okay, stop, <laughs> stop the presses." Yeah, let's get this figured this out. We need to get it right. Yeah, uh, because especially when you're dealing with stats, if you get it wrong, people are going to tell you, and uh, and then everything else that you've done is in question. So, uh, and I actually had that with my with my last book. I did the stats individually by promotion, so uh, I wasn't ambitious enough to tackle it as a as one list. So I'd say, hey, for River City Wrestling in Winnipeg, here were the guys with the most matches and the most wins in the company, top 25, and did that across you know all of those things. And I had somebody actually drop me an email to say, hey, you, you said in your book that this wrestler had this many matches and wins. Well, by my count, they had this many matches and wins. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that we got that right. So the last six months of development uh, of the book was all counting. We just I'd spent hours and hours and hours <laughs> just tallying promotion by promotion, and then rolling that up into you know the provincial list, and then rolling that up into the national list to make sure that those numbers are right. And uh, I'm sure that when it gets published, someone will say, hey, I should be in the top 100. I definitely had more matches than that. <laughs> if you did, then they've been sitting in your closet and you haven't been forthcoming yeah. with them because this is what has been found you know, with 
all of these, you know, consultation with all of these historians across the country, uh, you know, as well as individual collections and, and sometimes families of deceased wrestlers sharing memorabilia or, or scrapbooks that they had in their closets, uh, allowing us to scan them and, and, you know, transcribe the information and send them back. Um, yeah, it, it's been a pretty exhaustive project and, uh, you know, while, while it's my name on the cover of the book, it certainly wouldn't be possible without, you know, the contributions of dozens of people. Now, the 100 wrestlers is something that I will will circle back to in another special episode and uh, one a little bit closer to so we can kind of give people a bit more of, this, of a sneak peek behind the curtain of the production. But there's, there's sure. something else that I wanted to ask about as well. And it pertains to you trying to make sure that everything is buttoned down. It's as accurate as possible. And you just alliterated how much, you know, time and effort and how exhaustive it is. Do you find that being a wrestler yourself, that gives you more of an incentive to make sure that it's on the nose a hundred percent? Cause I find with myself, I'm not a wrestler. I've, I've never, I've done training, but I'm not a wrestler. And when I'm doing the pro, like the flagship program, Grappling with Canada, I try very hard to make sure that, okay, what I'm saying on the record is factually correct. And if I don't think it is, it's not going in the program. And there's been times where I've agonized, do I put this in? Do I not put this in? Do, you know, how far do I go into something that may not be true? How much weight do I put into something like that? For yourself, do you find that it's you're almost more in tune with that because you're a wrestler and you want to make sure you get it right? Or do you find that because you're a wrestler, you're more interested in kind of developing those facts and seeing where they go more so than actually nailing them down? I think it's, I think there's kind of, you know, two areas of development. So if I had written the book, uh, entirely about a territory where I never worked. Uh, there's less pressure uh, because there's there's nobody worrying about how I framed the narrative based on what side of the a, a promotional politics that I was on. And hold that uh, thought because I'm going to pick your brain about that thought again a little bit later. But please continue. Yeah. So yeah, so you know, in my in my last book, you know, I. I reached out, I probably spent, you know, months and I would send out uh, emails to every promoter. I would say, here's what I'm doing. Here's the scope of the book. You know, here's kind of the starter, you know, six to 12 questions. If you can get it back to me, like, I want to hear your story and your words. And, and my goal has always been, um, and, and more so with this book, is everybody gets to be the hero of their own story. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about, you know, if Andy is a promoter, okay, you tell me the story of your promotion from your perspective. How did it start? Why did it start? What were some of your early successes? What were some of your challenges? Um, you know, what are you most proud of? You know, if the promotion is closed, why did it close from your perspective? And if the story seems complete and it makes sense, there's no need for me to debunk that uh, at all. Uh, it, but you know, if you've got a promotion that, okay, I've now sent five notices to the promoter, 
given them the deadlines, extended the deadlines, waited, didn't get anything. But I don't want to exclude the company. Well, now I'm reaching out to people that I know work there, mm-hmm. and I'm getting their input on, okay, tell me the story of this company. And in one case, in my last book, the story that came back was completely unflattering to the organization. Uh, and, and on the outside, you know, it, it seemed like a million bucks and it looked like they spent a million bucks. But inside, you know, there was a lot of chaos and turmoil. Now, when that story came out, uh, I remember circling back again, like after I had gotten the content from those other people and thinking, geez, man, I'm really concerned that this promoter is going to be upset yes. by you know, how this is how this is laid out. But this is here's the emails from the people or here's the recordings of the phone calls. This is what they said. This is what was reported. And so I reached out again and I said, hey, you know what? I'm willing to give you an extension if you can get me some stuff. And the response I got back from that person was, well, I look forward to reading about all my failures. Okay, well, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) Because what else uh, do you have? Yeah, and so there was was some hard feelings uh, stemming from that. And uh, actually, even into the production of this book, because I circled back again and reached out and said, okay, I'm going to press again. I'm going to publish a book. You know, do you want to contribute? And the first email that I got back was pure venom, like three pages of, of venom about uh, how I'm, I'm talentless as a writer and a researcher and as a human being. And uh, and then, you know, there were some, some follow-up emails where they actually did, you know, tell their side of the story. And, you know, when I look at it and say, you know what, this, this makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that promoter may be a villain in everyone else's chapter, or there may be things from that other another promoter's perspective where they say, well, this was something that they did that was really dirty and detrimental to our business. Um, in, in their chapter, they're going to have their opportunity to represent their version of events. Um, but you know, in this promoter's chapter, they'll have theirs. Now, something that you just mentioned there is, is the politics of wrestling. And this is a term that, many wrestling fans are, are quite familiar with, more so in a backstage uh, context, if you will. Sure. People who are who are researching wrestling history, um, whether it's it's authors such as yourself, whether it's, you know, <laughs> podcasting schlubs like me, or, you know, some of the guys like you said, Wes and Jesse, who do tremendous work with, with the NWAC. Um, we've all kind of got caught at one point in time in a politics struggle in, in one form or another. Sure. How much, how much of that did you encounter in your research for this book and how much did it influence decisions that you made in terms of your Reese, how deep you wanted to dig into a specific subject of the book? You know what? I think, um, you know, I, uh, you can't tell the story of wrestling without without talking about the politics of what has transpired. Yes. So when you take a look even even at at the top level of wrestling, uh, so you had at one point an organization, the National Wrestling Association. They were that was it. They were the governing body from the 1940s to the 1960s. They sort of held monopoly 
uh, over the wrestling industry in North America. Uh, you know, and if you didn't play ball with them, you were blackballed out of, out of the industry. But what happened was you reached a point where there was disagreement over who should be the world champion. And as a result, uh, in 1960, Vern Gagne decided to go his own way. Uh, and it was because they wouldn't make Vern Gagne world champion. Uh, so he decided, well, I'm going to walk away from it. I'm going to make myself world champion of the AWA. Yep. Uh, so in 1960, the AWA was created. So they broke off, uh, and you know there was a, a bit of a territorial war between the AWA, and then now they were going to take up those markets within their radius that were NWA towns. Um, and then in 1963, there was a dispute uh, because Buddy Rogers was the biggest drawing card in the Northeast, uh, but the NWA promoters felt that Vince McMahon Sr. was monopolizing all of its bookings and yes. all the members in the NWA were getting upset. So they decided to take the belt off of Buddy Rogers. And in response to that, Vince McMahon Sr. said, okay, screw you guys. I'm out of the NWA. I'm going to create my own brand. We're going to be the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. And that's the start of the WWE in 1963. So at the top level, like you got those major politics happening that changed directions uh, and some of that is 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 definitely you know, documented and apparent when you talk about the promoter Eddie Quinn in Montreal, where you know his uh, dissatisfaction with some of the decisions that were happening in the NWA, uh, you know, particularly around 1957, where they decided that they were going to split the title uh, because Luthez was going to be traveling internationally, and the local promoters still wanted a champion to promote. Yeah. So they decided they would have him drop the belt, you know, on a controversial finish to Edward Carpaccio, and Carpaccio would be a claimant to the NWA world title. Um, but as that decision blew up in their face, uh, the guy that most benefited from Carpaccio as world champion was Eddie Quinn, the promoter who had management of him in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And so when that all went south, uh, you know, and, he sort of drew disfavor among the NWA membership. Carpaccio decides he's not working for Eddie Quinn. He's going to work with the promoter out of Chicago now, Fred Kohler. Uh, and Eddie Quinn makes a very bold move. He says, you know what? I've decided I'm leaving the NWA. Plus, not only am I going to run my empire in Montreal, I'm also going to take over Chicago and Boston. Yeah. So you got like these, you know, these really cool things happening. And when you take a look at what Eddie Quinn was trying to do in the fifties and it kind of got shut down because the NWA monopoly was really strong at that time. What he did and what he was proposing to do is basically what Vince McMahon Jr. did 30 years later. Yep. It's almost to, almost to the letter. Yeah. And so Eddie Quinn wasn't the last to try it. You know, Eddie Quinn tried it, you know, in 1959, 60, Eddie Einhorn, who was an executive with one of the networks, uh, American networks in the mid seventies, try to do it with the IWA, um, you know, and, and, you know, that quickly got, you know, shut down. And then Vince was the guy to successfully do it. Uh, but you know, when you, when you listen, listen to the wrestling history that's portrayed now, right. They make it sound like Vince McMahon was the only guy to ever have this yeah. thought that wrestling should be national. Uh, he was the only guy to ever try it and totally what, what check it out. He was successful. So, some of those things just to shed light on that, that. I mean, yeah, what Vince McMahon has done 
with and for wrestling is incredible. But there were some tremendous innovators uh, and, and very savvy business people before then um, as well that were doing some really fascinating things. And, and I'm glad that to have the forum to sort of celebrate those things. Yes, because it's, you know, as controversial as some of these stories are, in terms of the grander, you know, tale of what's transpired in Canada and and with Canadian wrestling talent, you you really need those stories to kind of broaden the picture and really paint what actually happened, right? You, you can't tell, you almost can't tell any of the stories in Canada without starting from the ground level, right? If, if you start leaving out, you know, this thing because it's, you know, it's too dark of a topic or you leave out this thing because you don't want to offend somebody, well, now you have an incomplete picture and now other th- parts of your story in in the future sense don't make any sense. And then you're having to backtrack yeah, and everything I, like that. Yeah, I think one of the things that is most interesting and, and, and I'll leave it for the, the readers to find it and, and actually do the count themselves is when you take a look at the territory era of wrestling and the reasons why people would break off and, and create opposition, the, the reasons for doing that become completely different in the 1990s and 2000s. And so you, you might've had from 1930 to 1990, 40 promotions in Canada nationwide mm-hmm. over the whole span of that time. Some of them ran for a few years. Some of them ran long. That's over the whole country. 42 promotions from, from the end of 60 year span. But you go over the last 30 years and it's been more than a thousand promotions. And so, of course, not all of them could be in the book. Yes. <laughs> you know, we draw a line somewhere. And I think even if you draw a line with, with a threshold of anything less than 20 events promoted is out, that that gets rid of about 90%. Uh, and, and so what happens is, is uh, you know, in the territory days, a lot of those decisions were happening because of money. You know, and, and you take a look specifically at Montreal. You had Johnny Rougeau at the head of an empire making a lot of money. And, and it was sort of the jealous people around him that were like, Rougeau's making too much money. You know, we need to do something about that. Mm-hmm. So Yvonne Robert joe's mentor went to montreal to find maurice vachon who was the biggest star other than johnny rougeau to come out of montreal and brought uh, maurice vachon back to quebec under a new banner as, as grand prix wrestling yeah. and now you've got these two companies battling and it's not about creative because it's not it's not a case of maurice vachon was unhappy with how he was being used on Johnny Rougeau's show because he wasn't even there. He wasn't in the territory. He was in Montreal as an AWA World Tag Team Champion. It was about money. They they looked at the the market. And they said, "Hey, there's enough there's enough room here," and they proved it over a short period of time. There was enough room for both companies to exist. Only they didn't want to. They they wanted to have monopoly of the territory, and that's and that's where things went. But when you take a look at the independence and and the reasons that that uh, you know, people break off and decide to do their own thing. These aren't decisions that are being made with money anymore, you know, or about money. It's it's usually creative, uh, and it's ego. Uh, you know, I'm not happy with how that promoter is using me, so I'm going to break off and and uh, I'm going to do my own thing. Well, 
you're not competing over the 10,000 seat Montreal Forum crowds here. You're competing over the 250 seats at the local community center. And now you've divided that market and then you're going to run head to head. And I'm, I'm guilty of it too in my early twenties and, and uh, let Eagle get to the better of me. Well, we're going to show that guy. We're going to run on yep. the same night as that guy. And we're going to run right across the street from him. Um, and, and we're going to prove a point. Yeah. We, we proved a point. The point we proved is we're dinks. Uh, because you would have had the 250 people that regularly showed up to his show or however many were going. We still had 250 people on the block that night. Only we had split the crowd. Yeah. We had 150 of it and they had the, uh, the remainder. Um, and, and so you, you take a look at things like that. You know, a lot of those ego based decisions are actually hurting wrestling now. Um, you know, and, and I look at it, you know, on the tail end of my career, I guess I'm a little less fearful to speak openly because I'm not worried about being canceled because I'm at the end, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where, where if I was sort of on the ascent of my career, maybe I'd be a little bit worried about, well, you know, I don't want to say that because then I won't be booked again. But when you take a look at you know, the Winnipeg scene right now in particular, there's like four or five different companies trying to run Winnipeg. Yeah. Uh, but they're all using the same talent roster. So really, what are you doing differently? Uh, you see the same headliners on all of those shows, same guys carrying belts. So really, what you're, what you're, what you're conveying to the fans is not uh, that this is a better show than that show. It's a big F you to that other promoter. Um, because you've got all of his guys on your show. It's not that our guys are better than your guys. And I think that that's... I think one of the, the things that's been a hard adjustment for me is, is this new school way of thinking. You know, I come up, came up in an era, era where you would be in a locker room and it's like, if you work for this company, when you're in this market, this is the company you work for. Yes. Whenever, you know, for example, for me, if I'm wrestling in Edmonton, when I wrestle in Edmonton, I wrestle for Monster Pro Wrestling. That is my company. Uh, when I'm wrestling in Calgary, I might wrestle for somebody different. But in Edmonton, that's their market. And that's who I wrestle for there. In, in, in Vancouver, I wrestle for All-Star Wrestling, and that's my brand. Mm-hmm. And you know, now you've, you've got these guys that have lost sight of that. And it's not even a case of, well, we need to get our reps in because you know, the WWE might be looking. No, that's not the case. You know, if you look at the WWE's recruiting strategy right now, what they're saying is, would actually prefer to book guys with no, no wrestling experience Yes, yeah, so they're all. just looking for pure athletes you now. We don't have to untrain their bad habits. Yeah. So it's not a matter of getting your reps because the model of success in wrestling has changed uh, dramatically. Um, so you, you get guys that just want to come and, and, and wrestle. Um, that's that's a topic for another day. But you know the the politics of, of wrestling is is always going to be a story, um, and and so I've tried to incorporate that as much as it explains why some of these changes occurred or yes. why this promotion closed and this promotion opened. But you also don't want it to dominate, you know, the, the, the narrative, you know, in the same way that, you know, whatever contract negotiations somebody like Kevin Owens may have had, and we were all seeing those reports of these big numbers and the contract he signed, it can't overshadow WrestleMania. 
Yeah. So what's happening in the ring and those things that are taking place and then the, the fascinating lives and careers of the performers needs to be forefront. And, and, uh, I think especially, you know, when you, when you're talking about the classic era of wrestling, some of those names that you would feature are obvious, you know, when you're talking about stampede wrestling, yeah, we definitely need to talk about the heart family, but we need to talk about some of those villains that made the hearts as well. The Archie Goolies and yes. the, the butchers and, and guys like that. When you get into the independence, now, you know, those names locally, you know, them. if I, you know, if I said to you, you, you tell me who are the top 10 guys in Winnipeg that you can't tell the story of independent wrestling without talking about, you know, those guys, but you might not know those guys for the Maritimes. Mm-hmm. And so when you get in and dig in regionally on those stories, uh, you know, statistically we represented it, anecdotally we represented it, um, you know, we are able to sort of share this uh, picture of professional wrestling that is, uh, you know, gender inclusive. It is culturally inclusive. Um, you know, there are tremendous stories of success and triumph over adversity in people with disabilities that have found their home in professional wrestling, whether that's a physical disability or a mental disability. They have found their family, their community in wrestling. And so those stories, uh, being able to get those to come through, uh, has been probably one of the most surprising rewards of the project. Now there's, uh, something you had brought up that I, I want to circle back to a little bit. I don't want to go too deep into this one. I'm sure this is, um, a topic that we'll have to follow up with in the, the next coming specials that, uh, that we'll be doing with you. But, in terms of, you know, the haterade, if you will, you had mentioned that you had a little bit of backlash from one of the promoters when you had your first book come out. And you kind of now have explained to the listeners at home that the, the gloves are kind of off, so to say, right? You're not so so concerned with stepping on somebody's toes. Not, not that you're going to go to your way to do it, however... Do you anticipate getting some hate mail, for lack of a better term, uh, in regards to uh, what's going to be out in, in the uh, in the book? I definitely will. Uh, I think mean, it's funny because I was I was making a list. You know, I had, I had kept a list because uh, with my previous book, uh, I've been working with Crowbar Press uh, out of uh, Tennessee, and they're a fantastic company to deal with. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, relationship between the publisher and the author yes uh, the challenge though was that they didn't have distribution so the majority of their sales were happening off their website and they've got an existing clientele uh primarily american uh, people that are really into wrestling and really into wrestling history and that was a tremendous boost uh you know to reach that market but in terms of the canadian sales it was really on me to hit the road and go out and sell the book yes uh you know, I would say that you know, 75 to 80 percent of, of my last book that I sold uh, was physically me, like at a wrestling show or at a comic con or you know, at some kind of public event, you know, a fair or a festival, selling and signing the book and handing it directly yeah. to you. <laughs> it's almost like farm to and table so, at that point. Yeah, you know, so 
uh, you know, in that way, you know, when I started to work on this book and, and reached the point where, okay, now the writing is done. Now let's look at, you know, the book launch. This time I'm working with Friesen Press, which is a, a Canadian company. They're actually based in Manitoba in Altona. Uh, they've got a branch here in Victoria, BC. Um, tremendous opportunity because they do have distribution, uh, which is, which is, which is a great use to have. Yes. But, you know, I was starting with a, a point where I now have the list of everyone by name that bought my last book. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I can call them up, you know, directly almost and say, hey, I've just written a new book. And I think you might like it as much as you like the old one. Yeah. Um, but so as I was going through that list, actually, you know, yesterday, you know, I was making a list of people that maybe I, you know, I, I've worked with or know or have met since the last book came out that wouldn't wouldn't have my last book but i think would enjoy the new one um and as i was going through i was also making a list of here are the people that aren't going to buy my book um you know for whatever reason it might be a wrestling beef that we that we have it might be because of something that was said in the last book mm -hmm. uh, you know, could, could just be a personality conflict um you know it's not a very long list <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's definitely a list that I'm aware of. Um, and, uh, so I think it's, you know, there's going to be a couple of things. I don't think there'll be as much of a challenge on content, although there'll always be those people that would be like, well, you got that mostly right, but we think that the context is a little bit out or we really didn't want you to talk about that thing, even though it was published in newspapers and it was yeah. like a court ruling. Um, but I think you know, the the first the first wave will be those guys that, that say your stats are wrong. Uh, you know, I, I should have been ranked or I should have been ranked higher than I was or whatever the case is. That's always the first wave. Yeah. Um, and and my response to that is always, well, show me your records because I'll gladly show you mine. Um, <laughs> and I have a feeling that yours might be a bit more in depth. <laughs> you know. It, and in a lot of cases, you know, and the, one of the funny things is um, one of the side projects that I, I like to do, and it actually came out as a as a result of doing results research initially, is I would I would start to look at who I was going to be on the road with, and so say, hey, I'm going to be on a road trip for six hours from Winnipeg to Regina with Chichi Cruz. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring my my results book with me, whether it was in a binder or I'd had had it bound at that point, had like in a Certilox, you know, book and bring it on the road. And I would show it to him and say, Hey, take a look through this and tell me what results of yours are missing. And he would start to flip through and he'd be like, ah, there's just too much stuff here. I have no idea what's missing. And so I said, okay, well maybe if I distill it and just actually put that guy's match record together, he'd be able to sort of identify where there was gaps or what was missing. And so that's why I started doing individual career records um, and I did probably a dozen of them, but, uh, when I was doing my last book, uh, I had the opportunity to sit down with guys like Don Leo, Jonathan and Moose Murawski and Dean Higuchi, uh, you know, some of these legendary guys. And as a thank you, cause Don Leo, Jonathan was just so, such a genuine human being. Uh, you know, he invited me into his home and we talked for hours and hours and hours, not all about wrestling. Mm -hmm. Just about his life and his experiences as a scuba diver and an underwater driller and all kinds of things. 
and he was just such a genuine guy. I just thought, you know, I need to do something more than just shake his hand and say thank you for the time or give him a, a free copy of the book. Uh, so I went away and I researched Don Leo's career. Well, Don Leo wrestled for 30 years from 1950 to 1980 uh, and had more than 3,000 matches. Yeah. And so the next time I went to visit Don Leo, I went back with a copy of his match record and gave it to him. Wow. And he was blown away. Right. He's like, I don't know how you found this, but he said, you know, my life and my career better than I do. <laughs> and, and that was just like, like a light bulb moment for me is that there, there is an opportunity for me to do something on a very personal level with all this research that's been collected. Uh, and so since that time, I've probably done uh, over 150 individual career records and always uh, give those directly to the wrestler themselves or that's in the so case cool. of someone that's passed to their families. Um, and there's been just some tremendous friendships that have been created as a result of that uh, from guys that get it. You know, when I uh, uh, gave the record to Terry Funk, uh, we had, we had met at the Cauliflower Alley Club in Las Vegas, and I gave him his match record, and I could you know I could see him like over in the corner, and he's paging through it, and and uh, he's like, wow, this is such an incredible gift. Well, he was uh, the master of ceremonies the next night at the at the big banquet at the Cauliflower Alley Club, yeah. and he got up there and he said, uh, you know, I would just like to say, uh, you know, this year I'm celebrating. You know, 46 years of marriage with my lovely wife, Vicky. Of course, a big round of applause around the room. He said, but, uh, you know, yesterday, Vance Nevada gave me this record book. And as I take a look at it and, and uh, deduct from that 46 years, uh, all the days I spent on the road wrestling, all the days I spent traveling to make to those bookings, the few nights I spent in jail, you know, the, <laughs> the, 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 yeah. he goes, when I had that all up, uh, I've been married to my wife for six months. <laughs> you know, and I just got this, this huge laugh uh, from the room, but uh, it's something that uh, you know just I just it, it brings me great joy to to do that and uh, to to be able to give back to the wrestling community and, and to wrestlers in that way. Um, so yeah, you know if if a guy like you know Mad Dog Michonne, uh I think one of the things, you know, just touching on that. So there's there's kind of this round number that the, the wrestlers from the territory era use, and it's 6,000 matches. They say, I wrestled 6,000 matches in my career. And how that number comes up is they say, well, I wrestled full-time for 20 years, and in that time we were wrestling 300 days a year. Mm -hmm. So... 300 days a year times 20 years, 6,000 matches. And in my research so far, I haven't found a single 6,000 match career. I think maybe Freddie Blassie, uh, you had one, maybe Ricky Morton. Uh, but, you know, in terms of like guys that were really, really busy, you know, you think about, uh, you know, Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, you know, they're in the, you know, 4,500 to 5,000 yeah. range, you know, they're right up there. Um, so I was really nervous about giving some guys their records because you get a guy like Mad Dog Michonne who is you know, in every media interview is quoted as saying, yeah, I had 6,000 matches in my career. 
and I'm giving him a record that says, no, that number is yeah, actually probably 3,200. Yeah. And uh, when he got it, he looked at it, and he's like, this is amazing. Uh, you know, he gave me some pointers on, here's some areas where there's some matches in this time period you don't have. And that was early Montreal that I didn't have at that time. Mm-hmm. Now I do. Um, but uh, a few months later, a, a documentary producer got in touch with Mad Dog and said, hey, we'd like to do a documentary on your life. And Mad Dog said, uh, you need to call Vance Nevada because he knows Mike <laughs> better, better than me. Uh, and so I was, you know, been able to sort of take that research and hand it off, you know, in that way. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, there's always researchers coming out, working on a project at some level, whether it's a local history or whether it's an individual wrestler's history. Um, you know, among that research community, it is very tightly knit. And so whenever there is somebody's working on a project, they'll reach out and they'll say, hey, I'm working on something on this wrestler. Do you have anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as a result, you know, a lot of the wrestling books that you pick up, if they're historical or biographical in nature, probably you'll see advanced to that in the acknowledgements because we just are always freely sharing information back and forth. You know? well, I got Especially one on the way right now that does. I got the Gordienko book on the way right now. So I know you're heavily yeah. involved in that one as well. Yeah. You know, the Gordienko project is one that, um, has been a long time coming and actually uh i had been you know talking to uh to george cordianko's nephew ted uh, uh about that years ago and that was before my last book came out and just got busy and realized like you know, i just don't have time right now i don't have capacity to do this book but i had all the research and I said like steven I think something needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what he said too. <laughs> so I'm I'm very glad to, to see that project come to fruition. Um, I've been working on a few other things related to George. Uh, just in the past few weeks, we've submitted uh, a uh, nomination package to the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. Tremendous uh, to induct George Borjanko. Um, and so I'm I'm hopeful that. You consider the full body of his work that George Gordienko may be the first professional wrestler ever to be inducted into the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. Well, it's it's uh, high time, I'll say, and I'm, I'm really hoping that uh, this finally is the year that it, it can happen, especially with the book coming out. Um, yeah, it just, it's, it's the perfect time. Yeah, I think the only thing that would have made the nomination package stronger would be if I could have had included a copy of the book. Um, yeah. You know, but it wasn't here at the time. But um, uh, very recently, I've inherited um, the whole George Cordianko memorabilia collection wow. from his nephew. And uh, I'm still not even a third of the way through it. Uh, but I've been you know, going through scanning and sorting and, and putting it together. I already have four three-inch binders that are chronologically sorted. Uh, and that's just of his wrestling career. There's at least two boxes that talk about his art career after that uh, that I still haven't got to yet. But um, I'm jealous. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's it's one of those projects that, you know, I really have to, uh, you know, be cautious of, you know, when I die into one of those boxes because that's going to be the day uh you know clear the clear the calendar for the rest of the day yeah because uh 
that's where I'm going to be. Um, he just had such a, a fascinating life um, that, uh, that I think there there could be another project on the horizon. It's too early to talk about publicly yet, but uh, I think there's going to be more celebrating George Cordiankle very soon. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Listen, tonight has been absolutely tremendous. Uh, we are going to be doing this again very shortly as we kind of build anticipation and build up to the release of the book. But before I let you go for tonight, I do have one last question. Is Yeah, you got Where can people find out more information about the book and how has the response been so far uh, in terms of the release and the continuing innovation of the project? Yeah, I think the best the best place for people to check in and, and get the updates is on Facebook. There's a Facebook page for the book at Uncontrolled Chaos Book uh, on Facebook. And we've uh, been really, really encouraged uh, by the early response. We've been uh, reaching out to people to encourage them to register for the pre-order list. And uh, as of just before I got on this call, We've been on that campaign only for 12 days, uh, and we already have more than 250 people registered wow. for the book in 12 days. Uh, in Across nine provinces, we still don't have any buyers yet from New Brunswick, uh, but uh, the response has been strong uh, from coast to coast uh, and the states, and we have three international orders from Japan, wow. Australia. forgetting the third country right now but uh it's been really really encouraging and and really really exciting as we get closer and closer to the launch day and listeners at home you can go in the show notes of this program tonight where you will find a direct link to the uh, facebook page make sure you go in and like that and uh, get yourself on the on the mailing list and get yourself uh get your mind right if you will and and get yourself ready for some professional wrestling Canadian professional wrestling history. Listen to me talk at the end of the program tonight. But listen, Vance, this was absolutely a treat for me. Uh, I can't wait to do this again. I am also going to uh, put this earworm out there for the listeners. If there's a question that you want asked of Vance Nevada, please send it to sixsidepod at gmail.com. And maybe we'll pick a few of the few of the listener questions for the next time we have you on the program as we kind of gear up and get ready for the release of this tremendous project. That sounds great. It's been fantastic, Andy, and uh, I look forward to talking again. Before we head to the finish of the program tonight, just once again want to mention friends of the show, Manscaped. Because, let's be real, nobody likes the Harry Guy at the Beach rave. It's time to bundle up with the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 Trimmer, Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Package Boxer Briefs, and their Shed Travel Bag to hold all those goodies. First off, the Performance Package 4.0 includes the Lawnmower 4.0. This trimmer was designed with summer intentions in mind. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to the advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunctional on-off switch, which can also engage a travel lock, and gives you the ability to turn the 4,000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise 
shave. Did I mention that the trimmer is waterproof too? Both pool and beach party approved. Manscaped even has you covered with their signature crop mop ball wipes for any, dare I say, spontaneous decisions. Want to take it up a notch? Manscaped's Shears 2.0 is an all-encompassing nail kit to tackle those gross sandal nails that you may acquire. Seal the deal with Manscaped's liquid formulations. Before heading outside, use the, use the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and keep your game in the heat. For any on-the-go ball sweats, freshen up with the Manscaped Crop Reviver and hop back into the mix with confidence. Manscaped even throws in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Premium Boxers, and the Shed Travel Bag. Bring your comfort and boxers to another level. Get 20% off, plus free shipping with promo code GWC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off, plus everyone's favorite free shipping with the promo code GWC at manscaped.com. It's time to trim off those spring flowers this summer and give your beach balls a shine with Manscaped. Once again, I just want to thank everybody for tuning into the program tonight. I especially want to thank Vance Nevada for his time in discussing a little bit of the upcoming project, Uncontrolled Chaos, Canada's Remarkable Professional Wrestling Legacy. I hope that everybody's going to go ahead and check out the Facebook page. Once again, you can find a direct link for the Facebook page in the show notes of today's program. If you have any questions for Vance when we have our next conversation, please email them to sixsidepod at gmail.com. And we'll pick some to air on the next upcoming episode as we really start to build anticipation for the release of the project. I also want to mention uh, good friends of the show, Wes and Jesse, with the National Wrestling Clipping Alliance. Uh, You can find them on Facebook as well. Uh, Wes does tremendous work uh, in regards to all things classic uh, wrestling and uh, Jesse is uh, the younger sidekick along for the ride but I <laughs> that's all all good in good fun Jesse has honestly binders upon binders upon binders of stuff and uh, they were very nice to send me a package the other month of uh, some newspaper clippings which I was very uh, happy to receive and have gone through and added to my ever-expanding collection of wrestling history so once again thank you Wes and Jesse and uh, make sure that you go and check out their program as well. You can find this program on any major podcasting platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, wherever you buy, sell, trade, barter, or steal your favorite podcasts. If you are listening to this, especially on Apple Podcasts, if you can go ahead and leave a five-star rating and a written review, I will make sure that your review gets read on the next available program. You can find ways to support this program in the show notes of today's episode. There are fantastic ways such as buymeacoffee.com slash grappling. There's a direct link to the PayPal account for this show, as well as the tip function on the GoodPods app. As well, you can buy your official merchandise for Grappling with Canada at grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com. 
And just a reminder that all proceeds from the classic Grappling with Canada logo shirt are being donated to charity. So, for myself, the Taxman, for my tremendous guest, Vance Nevada, once again, I hope that you will all get on the mailing list for the upcoming book. And to all of you, I will leave you as I usually do. Take care of yourselves and each other. And we'll see you again in a couple of days for the next episode of the flagship program, Grappling with Canada. Good night, everyone. <laughs>